Welcome to episode 21 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 7th, 8th and 9th of September 2021. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. Hi Mark, how's things with you? I'm great, thank you Brian. How are you? Yes, very well indeed. Thank you, Mark. We just passed for press on the August edition of Fire Safety Matters, a bumper issue, this one, 100 pages plus, uh, with a preview of the Fire Safety event, of course, as well. Yeah, and you can see that online right now. We've got a digital edition already, if you haven't already received a print edition, of both the Fire Safety event preview and Fire Safety Matters itself. When you get the physical copy, it looks fantastic because it's a reversible cover. Flip it upside down and you see the Fire Safety event preview. Turn it back the other way, you've got Fire Safety Matters. It's the biggest issue of Fire magazine that, that we've ever done. You know, it, it looks tremendous so congratulations to you in that and thank you to everyone that supported us with great content and advertising in it we're very much looking forward to that going out around the fire safety event which we'll talk about a bit more in a minute but as brian and i have said many times before you don't have to wait for a print edition to come out to see all the latest news you don't have to wait for this podcast to come out all you need to do is go to brian's website which is fsmatters.com and you'll see all the latest news prosecutions products and services and we've got a huge back archive of webinars in there. We've got a couple of key webinars also coming up this month, which is very much worth you um, going to check out. They actually take place on the 24th and 25th of August. And we've got one on domestic fire detection and fire alarm systems doing them right. And that's with BAFE. And we've got another one with fire safety and tall buildings using wireless technology with EMS. Completely free to register. And you will probably had emails about it. You'll see it on our social media. You can see it on our website, fsmatters.com. Please do check them out. So, Brian, we always kick off with the news. And what's the first news story you want to pick up on this week? Well, it's a very timely one. It's just been announced, Mark, in fact. Uh, residents will be safer in their homes thanks to new planning requirements that come into force this week, in fact. The new requirements known as Planning Gateway 1 will ensure that high-rise developments consider fire safety at the earliest stages of planning. Developments involving high-rise residential buildings must demonstrate from now on that they've been designed with fire safety in mind before planning permission is granted, including through their site layout and with access provided for fire ranges, etc. This information will be submitted as part of the planning application in a fire statement. Now, speaking about this move, Mark, Housing Minister Christopher Pincher MP said, this is a key step in our progress towards a new risk-based building safety regime that will ensure fire safety is prioritised at every stage in the development of high-rise buildings. I'm very pleased to appoint the Health and Safety Executive as the statutory consultee, and which will be on hand to provide its expertise to local planning authorities on these very important fire safety elements. Pincher went on to state, we're driving up the standards of safety for people's homes and our new regulator to be introduced under the Building Safety Bill will provide this essential oversight from a building's initial design right through to providing homes in the future. Local planning authorities must seek specialist advice on relevant applications from the Health and Safety Executive as a statutory consultee, as I said, on fire safety before a decision is made on the application. In future, this role is likely to become part of the new building safety regulator, which, led by the Health and Safety Executive, will oversee a new safety regime for high-rise residential premises. Now, Peter Baker, Chief Inspector of Buildings at the Health and Safety Executive, and a guest on episode 19 of the podcast, has said, Mark, 
The introduction of Planning Gateway 1 is an important milestone in the journey to radically reform building safety, such that residents are safe and feel safe in their own homes. It will ensure that fire safety is considered from the very beginning of the building's life cycle and that developments benefit from integrated thinking on fire safety. Peter Baker, who also features in an exclusive interview in the August edition of Fire Safety Matters, has added, the Health and Safety Executive is now a statutory consultee for planning applications involving relevant high-rise residential buildings and will apply risk-based fire safety knowledge and expertise to evaluate planning applications. This will enable local planning authorities to make sound and informed decisions. The changes to planning requirements follow a key recommendation, of course, made by Dame Judith Hackett, that fire safety in high-rise buildings should be considered at the earliest possible stage in the planning process, as set out in the independent review of building regulations and fire safety. It actually marks one of the first steps in the government's major overhaul of building safety regulation. On the 5th of July this year, of course, the Housing Secretary introduced the Building Safety Bill that will set a clear pathway for improved standards on how residential buildings should be constructed and maintained in times hence. What's your take on this one, Mark? Well, you've covered most of what I was going to say, Brian. You've done that very thoroughly as the article was very thorough and you can read it at your own leisure on fsmatters.com on our news section. I think the this is just a logical step because... Anyone that knows anything about fire safety, whether it uh, and particularly new build premises, we talk about here, new constructions, it is absolutely essential that right from the start of the life cycle of the building, from its planning stage, fire safety needs to be kept in mind. And I think that was one of the big things that came out of the independent review of uh, building safety and fire safety by Dame Judith Hackett. And obviously, a number of steps have happened along the way. You've seen the creation of the new building safety regulator as you rightly said we interviewed peter baker the chief inspector of buildings at the health and safety executive on a previous episode episode 19 but the part that you just said there you know and i'll just read back what you said to us which was developments involving high-rise residential buildings must demonstrate they have been designed with fire safety in mind before planning permission is granted including through their site layout and with access provided for fire engines this information will be submitted as part of the planning application in a fire statement and that, and that is absolutely key that is saying right from the start it has to be double checked triple checked and you know actually approved that considerations for fire safety be given right at the start of the building and you do need to consider access for fire engines fire appliances you know buildings are getting taller they're getting more complicated and access is going to be absolutely key because if we talk about a tall building brian if you talk about a skyscraper if that goes up as we've seen with the tragedy at grenfell it goes it can go up quick it can go fast it can spread it depends obviously what type of cladding is on there etc but that's a conversation for another day the fact is you need to have access for fire appliances to get in there and try and mitigate the damage and put the fire out so that's kind of a long-winded way of saying that it's just a common sense approach, Brian. It, it just makes sense. That's not saying that architects and everybody else weren't thinking of fire safety beforehand. Of course they will have been. But actually having someone like the HSC, which I'm sure will morph into more the building safety regulator, overseeing this process makes a lot of sense to me, Brian. And and what we're talking about, Peter Baker, as I said has been a previous guest of ours. I want to move on to our next uh, story I want to talk about. Hopefully you guys have all seen that Fire Safety Matters has announced a new live digital conference, which is taking place later this year. It's completely free to attend. For those of you that don't know, it takes place on the 3rd of November 
And you can register up for free to attend at fsmlive.co.uk. That is fsmlive.co.uk. Now, this is something completely new for us. We've done plenty of webinars, but actually a digital conference is much different. It's a full day of CPD accredited content. You have the ability to network with each other. So you can network with other delegates. You can network with our sponsors. You can network with our speakers. And how can you network? Well, you can send direct messages. You can request video calls. In the sponsors areas, there will be downloadable resources and videos that will be useful for you. But the agenda is, in my opinion, the strongest thing we've ever put together content-wise. And, you know, the tenuous link there was actually Peter Baker will be talking. He will be the first main speaker of the event, and he'll be talking about the role of the new building safety regulator. We've got a plethora of content. It runs from basically 10 a.m. in the morning when I open it up until, well, we hope to run to time, Brian. We're pretty good at this normally. Um, we're pretty disciplined on this, but it's it's a full day of content, not an hour like a webinar is, and, and it should go on till about half past three in the afternoon. You'll get a CPD certificate for all of it, but when we look at who's talking. It really is a who's who of associations and key manufacturers involved. So I've already talked about Peter's involvement. You'll have a session on integrated fire safety solutions from Amanda Hope at Advanced. You'll see Stephen Adams, Chief Executive of BAFE, chairing a panel debate with SSAIB and the National Security Inspectorate on the significance of competency culture in fire safety industry. You'll also see a session from Mike Sutton at Apollo Fire Detectors on the total cost of ownership in healthcare buildings in the UK. So for all of you that are NAFO members or have got any interest in healthcare, that's a session you won't want to miss. Then we've got Andy Speak, who I know very well, who's been a guest on this podcast in the past. And he's from ACO and he'll be talking about domestic fire and CO2 legislation, regulations and standards across the UK. So you know, we, we do try and cover CO2 legislation, or so CO legislation where we can. So we've also got Nigel Ward from FFE Limited. He'll be talking about how to protect facilities where rapid fire detection is critical. We've also got Jason Hill talking about using digital logbooks to ensure fire safety compliance. That That is a bit different, and that'll be an interesting session. We've got my good friend Ian Moore, the CEO of the Fire Industry Association. Um, I think uh, we could call him almost a perennial guest, Brian, on this podcast. He's been on more than once. And he will be talking very much the topic we talked about today, competence for building a safer future. And that will all be on the back of the Hackett Report. And that is a session you definitely won't want to miss. And we've got Mark Whiteley from Asikos, and he'll be talking about are you protected against the dangers of fires involving hazardous materials? That will be quite illustrative, Brian. You know, we've got the webcams on everybody and we're showing PowerPoint presentations, but Mark's presentations will really show some quite impressive and terrifying explosions from when hazardous materials catch fire. And he'll be talking about how you can mitigate against those risks. We've got Niall Rowan from the Association for Specialist Fire Protection, talking about competence and passive fire protection. I mean, what else could the ASAP talk on? Obviously, that's what they're going to want to talk about. And that is going to always be a really topical session. And then another good friend of ours, Dr. Bob Doherty, talking about career pathways for fire risk assessors. Now, in fact, I know you're about to, to introduce it, Brian, but I sat down with Warren Spencer, who's obviously on every edition of this podcast, and we talk about fire risk assessors and some of the issues they're facing legally at the moment. And And this will be a really interesting session from Bob. Bob, doesn't matter what time of day you put Bob on, he can draw a crowd because he's a really 
interesting and knowledgeable guy. And he'll talk about um, his vision and Institute of Fire Safety Manager's vision for creating a national career pathway for competent fire risk assessors. And as you can see, Brian, throughout this event, competency, making sure you're legally compliant, up to date with the latest legislation and regulation is right at the core of everything that we're giving away here. It's completely free to attend, as I said, takes place on the 3rd of November. Please do register now. You'll be able to interact with everybody else on there. It's a really great networking opportunity as well. And it's CPD. There is really no reasons not not to be there. So hopefully there's something for everyone on those sessions. So that takes place on the 3rd of November 2021 and you can register for free at fsmlive.co.uk i don't know if there's anything else you want to add to that brian i know you're equally as excited as me about uh us delivering something a bit different for our listeners and readers yes it's a fantastic program mark and i say that as somebody who's been involved with comrades whether online or in the physical space for many many years now almost 30 years in fact um and i would say in the august edition of fire safety matters there's a, a news story on the lead news page for that edition page six where readers can find out some more detail about the conference. And also there's an in-house ad we're carrying in the magazine, page 63, I believe, with some more information on how to register. It terrifies me that you know what page number something is out of a 100-page issue. Uh, no one could ever accuse you of not being thorough on these things. I was impressed that you could remember um, what episode Peter Baker was on, because I was just desperately trying to remember which episode of the podcast he was on, and you, and you beat me to it. But no, we're excited about this. This is something that a lot of your listeners have asked for, something like this, more networking, more digital networking, more CPD. So I really hope you guys can... Even if it's just for part of it, hopefully you can come for the whole day and you'll be able to watch it on demand after. But I really hope you guys can come along to this because we're very excited about it. So fsmlive.co.uk or as Brian just said, you can pick up the latest copy of FSM and you will find all the details in there. Our first guest on this edition of the podcast is Warren Spencer, Managing Director of Blackhurst Bud Solicitors and a regular contributor to the Fire Safety Matters podcast. As a fire safety focused legal practitioner, Warren has actually prosecuted more cases under the fire safety order than anyone else. Once again in conversation with Mark, this time around Warren focuses on the belief that associations need to take the lead when it comes to the competency of fire risk assessors. Morning, Warren. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Mark. How are you? I'm good. I've nicked back from Spain simply to interview you for this podcast. That's how important this segment is to me, and you are, Warren. So uh, it sounds like a really tough life, Mark. It is a tough life. My tan's fading three days, and I've had more COVID tests than I've seen sunlight. But I, but I'll survive. First world problems. But let's talk about something that we're both quite passionate about. And, and we always, you know, the listeners won't know this. We always have a chat before we do this interview about what are we going to go over and, and different things and different topics that have caught our eye. Now, there was a recent case and we won't go into much details about Warren. It was all about competency. And I, and I know it's raised some concerns for you that you've said to me that actually in certain circumstances you've seen recently, that actually there's not a lot wrong with some of the risk assessment that's been done and you're concerned about how this is being taken forward by prosecuting authorities. Do you want to just touch on this and then I'll have a follow-up question for you? Yes, the the, the concern of mine is that I'm becoming involved both in prosecution and in defence in more and more investigations into fire risk assessors. Um, And whereas six or seven years ago they were in relation to 
very, very poor risk assessments and risk assessments which really had no place um, in respect of a building. Uh, these are now much more intricate and the, the, the alleged defects are much more subtle. Uh, and effectively, uh, there only has to be one defect to render a fire risk assessment as not suitable and sufficient. What, what, what surprised me is that there is an appetite for almost perfection as far as fire risk assessments are concerned. Um, and in the case you, you talked about, um, you, you may or may not be aware that there was an industry expert involved in that case who found very little wrong with the fire risk assessment uh, and went one step further um, and said that the fire risk assessment did not place anybody at risk of death or serious injury. Um, and that the courts were just quite unsympathetic towards that line of argument. Um, so what concerns me, bearing in mind the fire safety bill uh, and, and the part two, which, which makes it very clear that competency is now on the horizon, is what is competency going to look like uh, for the industry? Um, are the government going to speak to all interested parties? And are those interested parties going to speak as one as to what they believe competency looks like? And my concern is, and I've expressed this many times before, is because of the disparate nature of the industry, there won't be one voice agreeing upon what competency looks like. And if that is the case, then competency will be imposed by people who don't perhaps know as much about competency as they should. And, you know, for me, sitting in fire sector federations meetings, I often do see disagreements from different associations and different angles. And that, in my opinion, is one of the problems that the sector faces. It, it does struggle to have a unified voice on a number of things. There's always different agendas pushing different things. We all have one thing in common, that we want life, safety and property protection to be top of the agenda. But it's, it's how you get there is always something that isn't necessarily agreed on. Now, we were talking off air a moment ago on this topic. I know you're quite passionate about it. Based on what you just said about that case that you're involved in and the way that you fear things are going, do you think that industry associations have more of a role to play in this? I think that's what you've just hinted at, isn't it, Warren? Yes, I, I think all of these industry associations, um, and there are many, uh, and too many in my view, uh, because it, it waters down the voice, effectively. It, it becomes more disparate. Um, but... Let's just take, for example, a police officer, um, and I sit as a chair of disciplinary proceedings. If a police officer um, is charged with misconduct, the police federation step in and, and act in that officer's best interest and, and do their best to protect and support. Um, and what I am wondering is, is that the kind of um, role that could be played by these industry organisations? Or is it going to be the opposite, which is, well, if you've got a black mark against your name or the, the, the um, finger of the law is placed upon your shoulder, uh, you're out. Um, and that, that is the, the dichotomy that they're all going to have to ask themselves. Um, because let's, ju let's just say, for example, um, there is argument as to what is suitable and sufficient. Uh, the, the, role, the, the way that goes forward now is that the prosecution... Uh, fire officers say we don't believe it's suitable and sufficient for these reasons and then the defendant has to go and get an expert's report to support them and the expert's report will be uh, compiled usually by either a, an ex-fire officer or somebody with the due qualifications uh, as, uh, within the industry. Um, but wouldn't it be better if the fire risk assessor could turn to his or her organisation and say 
right, are you going to support me in this? Because an organization's support will go a long way. You know, if you're, you're pitching up to a crown court with, with an organization saying, we actually don't think there's a lot wrong with this, or there may well be, but it's an understandable mistake, etc., then that's going to carry a, a whole lot of weight. Whereas, you know, just simply saying my expert says, no, we disagree with the fire service, will not carry as much weight. And, and it's the role that they want to take that I think is important. But I still, I'm still of the view that there needs to be less organisations speaking as one rather than so many different agendas. I know. And that's obviously the aim of the Fire Sector Federation to try and unify. Um, and it has a difficult job doing so. It's interesting. You've almost gone back to the old fashioned way as a lawyer should do of uh, innocent until proven guilty in that situation looking for support before. But you've also gone one step further, haven't you, of saying that sometimes the lines that there is shades of grey in this and you're worried that things who, who's setting that agenda of, of what is a perfect risk assessment, isn't it? And, that, and that's where you're really saying that actually the industry needs to take ownership. If there is this many industry associations, they need to help support members, support the sector in terms of what competency is. But actually, if something, as you said in the case you've worked on, isn't as clear cut, they should potentially be pushing back on the prosecuting authorities and, and the government and legislation and saying, do you know what? There wasn't a lot wrong with this and we, we don't completely agree with you. You want to see them give more support to certain cases, don't you? Yeah, and that's, that, that, what, what do their members want from these organisations? And if I was a member, I'd be wanting support where it was due. And, and um, is that is that going to be forthcoming? But I, can, I understand the political ramifications of that, which is, well, if it, if, it, if it ends up in a conviction, does that tarnish the name of the organisation? I can see why they would run a mile from that. However, you know, competency is on the horizon and... Nobody seems to be agreed on what competency looks like because even the accreditation bodies are disparate. And I don't know what, you know, is proposed as far as um, obtaining the necessary competency qualification is concerned, whether they'll keep the accreditation bodies in place and just simply demand that you're a member of one of them. I don't know. Or whether they'll say, no, there's going to be an overarching competency framework here. Um, And this has happened you know, in the health and safety sector, because Hackett herself set one up when she was put in charge of that organisation. So um, that's what's envisaged. As I say, it was watered down from the draft report, but it's now on the horizon in the Fire Safety Bill Part 2. And I went around the country three years ago telling these organisations to think about this, and and nothing happened. Um, I think if they miss this opportunity it really will, really will come back to home. Unfortunately, things do seem to move very slowly in the fire sector. And that is a perfectly good example. And I remember you doing just that. And there are a number of great associations out there. And we work with, with most of them. I certainly think we probably put the cat amongst the pigeons with that um, take today. It's, it's an interesting angle. And, and I'd be really interested in hearing response from the listeners and the readers of Fire Safety Matters to see if you if you support Warren's view on that or if you disagree, why? And I'd be keen to hear from associations on this too in accreditation bodies. So I'm sure we will follow this up, Warren. But if people want to follow up with you, the usual ending to this segment, how can people get in touch with you, Warren? As usual, I'm on LinkedIn. I post quite regularly on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, uh, Blackers Bud Solicitors, uh, firesafetylaw.co.uk website. Thanks, Warren. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mark.
So as always, thank you to Warren for his time. He certainly had a lot to say this week and passionate about it. And I suspect we'll hear more on this topic as it goes on. And as I said at the end of my interview with him there, I really do hope all of you guys can interact with us and give us your views. Email us, go to our website, or just use the hashtag FSM podcast to give your views on social media. We'd certainly be keen to hear of them. But back to the news for a moment. So... As you all know, and we've heard um, in Brian's openings of these podcasts, we are absolutely proud and delighted to be sponsored this podcast by the Fire Safety Event, which takes place very soon now, the 7th to 9th of September at the NEC in Birmingham. This has been a long time coming, Brian. You know, it was meant to be in April last year, then September, then April this year. And it's finally happening. You know, the, the restrictions have been lifted for COVID by the government. Uh, that's a conversation for another day, obviously. And we have a major industry event to go to. In fact, the biggest industry event. There is no exhibition in the UK in the fire safety market that has as many exhibitors and floor space as a fire safety event. And as someone that launched that event, well, I worked for that company. I'm very proud of that, obviously. And uh, and we are heavily involved as FSM in terms of putting on the content for the theatres there. And one thing I've learned about our audience, Brian, and I know you certainly have since you've been here too, is they are passionate about engaging content they will go out of the office or they will go to digital events they will read publications if it's something they can learn from and i've had to keep that in mind when i've done the main theater content for this and the fire safety theater at the fire safety event uh, which is sponsored by advance and the content put on by myself and fire safety matters i've really tried to give content that would make you guys want to be there and try to make it as as you know diverse as possible so we can't ignore Another piece of legislation is looking to come in. So we've got a session on the implications of the new building safety bill, and that will be delivered by Dennis Davis of the Fire Sector Federation, Niall Rowan of the ASFP, and my old boss, um, John O'Neill, uh, the managing director of the Fire Protection Association. We also can't ignore third-party certification, and Stephen Adams, Chief Executive of BAFE, will be talking on that topic, along with Craig Halford, the managing director of Jacktone. Can't ignore cladding, Brian, obviously, either. And there's a session on fire safety of insulated panels and facade systems. You've got a good friend of ours, Bob Bantock, going alongside Amanda Hope, and a lady I know well, talking about protecting historic premises from fire. And then, actually, one of the sessions that I love, and in fact, I've been part of in the past, and this is a fire safety mock trial. It's a full-hour session, and it's put on by Pinson Masons, Laura White over there. And they do recreate an actual fire safety prosecution and based on a real life scenario under the fire safety order. So this was a real case, but they're reenacting it to make you guys effectively the judge and the jury. Anyone that goes there, you've got a chance to say guilty or not guilty. And I have been the defendant in two of these in the past. I'm not, thankfully, for this one. And when I say I've been the defendant, Brian, I don't mean I've been in the top for fire safety event uh, prosecutions uh, for real, but at the fire safety event I have. I managed to get off once, Brian, which was uh, a real win for me. And uh, I was convicted on the other one. So, um, but in actual in real life, both were found guilty in, in real life. So that's a session I think you guys really enjoy. It's not often you get access to lawyers. Obviously, we're lucky that we can give Warren Spencer to you as part of this. And Laura is a regular columnist in our magazine. So that will be really, really interesting. We've got a session on how does COVID-19 impact the fire industry as well going in there. 
And that's just day one. You know, day two, there's managing your fire risk and liability, the importance of passive fire protection, evacuation planning solutions, meeting the new BS 8629 standards. There's a session from the government, we delivered by the Home Office, which we're very proud to be part of, on the new fire safety bill, all you need to know. The changing law and the need for sprinklers, Stuart Kidd is delivering that one on behalf of BAFSA, protecting modern premises. There's protecting healthcare premises as well, um, because, you know, that's become more and more important in the wake of COVID-19. Then on day three, which is the 9th of September, there's managing fire risks in the structure of external walls and the building envelopes. Uh, that's being um, put on by SideRise. There's ensuring your fire detection system is reliable. Is your building compliant with fire safety laws? And that's been delivered uh, by the National Fire Chiefs Council, actually. Protecting your building with modern fire solutions. And then, of course, because I just love to give him a graveyard slot, as he would call it, but he always brings the audience. Bob Doherty's back, along with Ian Kavanagh, on is your fire risk assessment suitable or are you legally exposed? Now, on top of all this, Brian, there are other theatres. There's a fire and security installer theatres. There are all of you installers out there. There's a dedicated theatre to you. There is a tall building theatre being organised by ASFP and sponsored by Safety Chair, all to do with tall buildings, fire safety and evacuation policies. Everything you'd imagine will be covered in there. And there's also one of my favourite elements to the show, which is the Dizia with a Bang theatre being put on by ASICOS. And that will give live demonstrations of chemical explosions. And it really is a hands-on. Um, they do have to check the decibel level, Brian, because of the bangs to make sure they're health and safety compliant. But no other event will give you that kind of interactivity of a demonstration. So I'm, I'm very proud that we're a part of this. I'm so relieved that we're all going to finally get back together at a major event on the 7th and 9th of September at the NEC. You know, it's an event close to my heart. You know, I don't work for that company anymore. You know, we have a key strategic partnership with them, obviously, and we're proud that they're our sponsors of this podcast. But this is an event that's just grown and grown and is, you know, for me having the opportunity to launch it four years ago to now see it's the biggest fire safety event in the UK is is phenomenal and then if you register to attend which you can do for free at firesafetyevent.com you also get access to the national cyber security show the security event the facilities event the emergency services show and the health and safety event six different events one pass it's 54,000 square meters of space it's had you know, I think nearly 30,000 people register for this event already. It's going to be an absolute cracker. But actually, quite frankly, I'm looking forward to seeing all of you there. I love doing this podcast with Brian, but I am looking forward to some face-to-face -face interaction. You know, I'll be there the entire time. We've got a stand, the Fire Safety Matter stand. Please do come and try and find us. I might be running around a bit like a blue-ass fly around different theatres, but I will be there and I'm looking forward to seeing as many of you as possible. So, Brian, obviously this will be your first opportunity to go to a, a major industry event as editor of FSM. It feels like forever that you've been editor of FSM because you started with us at the start of 2020. But effectively, the day you came in, the pandemic started. I don't want to point fingers, Brian, but, uh, you know, this is it's a situation where we just haven't been able to get out and meet people because of lockdown. So it must be great for you too, to be able to go out with the biggest issue of the magazine we've ever done at a major industry event. I know you've been to loads of these events before because you've been in the sector so long, but first chance we've had to go around together for a fair while, isn't it, Brian? 
It is indeed, Mark. And as you mentioned, there is an extensive preview of the fire safety events in the August print edition of Fire Safety Matters. This includes an exclusive interview with event director Tristan Norman, which you conducted yourself, of course, Mark. A full rundown of the timetables for the fire safety theatre and the tall buildings theatre. There's an article on evacuation planning from Evac Chair International. And also another focused on the Fire Safety Act 2021 that's been scripted by Apollo. In addition to all of that, there's an article on wireless fire safety systems from HiFire. We've also got a preview of the emergency services show, which, as you mentioned, runs in concurrence with the fire safety events. And a roundup of the products and solutions that will be on show at the NEC from the likes of SeaTech, Global Fire Equipment, Advanced and Plumis. So plenty for the readers to digest there, Mark. And like you, I'm certainly looking forward to meeting up with everyone in the sector at the NEC. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have our colleague, our sales manager, Leanne, with us as well. Um, you know, we, we're keen to meet with as many readers, advertisers, people in the sector as possible. Because actually, if you do come, it's a great opportunity for networking. There's nothing better than it for that. There's huge educational content on offer across all of the shows. You know, I just took five minutes talking about the stuff that we've worked on. I could have spent a lot longer talking about what else is on. But actually, if you do manage to come, do come and see us because... Brian, Leanne and I would be very keen to hear what you think of this podcast, hear what you think of the magazines, the webinars and everything else that we do, because, you know, we can't do it without you guys. We want to be on as engaging content as possible. So any things that we can do to improve, we would always be keen to hear any topics you'd like us to cover, any guests you'd like us to bring on the podcast or contributors to the magazines. We are all ears. So do come and see us and um, do come by, you know, take a photo of us on the stand, share on social media, share with your network. And we really do hope to see you on the 7th to 9th of September at the NEC. Just register for free, www.firesafetyevent.com. So it's time for one more news story then, Brian. What have you got for us? Yes, it's another important one, Mark. The Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government has just issued the Waking Watch Relief Fund data as it stood at Wednesday the 30th of June. The figures outlined suggest that to date, somewhat slow progress has been made when it comes to allocating the funding that's available. Of the 273 applications received since the start of the Waking Watch Relief Fund back in January of this year, it emerges that only 126 of them, i.e. 46%, have actually been successful while just £16.5 million of the £30 million funding set aside has thus far been approved. By way of a caveat there, Mark, it's worth bearing in mind that some assessment by the Greater London Authority is still ongoing. Uh, Further, the MHCLG figures show that there has been 40 rejected applications to date. Three major cities outside of London, namely Birmingham, Leeds and Liverpool, have received the highest levels of funding approvals, amounting to somewhere in the region of £5.3 million. Now, it was recently reported by the Evening Standard in London that the London Fire Brigade has stated that close on 1,000 buildings in the capital currently require waking watch monitoring for a variety of reasons. That figure has, in fact, tripled across the last 12 months. Of the 901 buildings involved, 675 of them have unresolved cladding issues, while the remainder harbour other types of fire safety defects. Tenants and leaseholders are being left to bear the financial burden of waking watches. The MHCLG data points out that the cost per dwelling per month of having a waking watch in place ranges from £77 through to £110 outside of Greater London. Given the problems experienced around data quality problems and those aforementioned ongoing assessments, those amounts need to be viewed by commentators with a certain degree of caution. Designed to cover the cost of installing a fire alarm system in place of using a waking watch setup, the Waking Watch Relief Fund outlines strict criteria for buildings to be eligible for financial support. Buildings must be within the private sector, be over 17.7 metres in height, 
have an unsafe cladding system installed and also a waking watch in situ, whereby the attendant costs for this have been passed on to resident leaseholders. Now, commenting on this news on LinkedIn, Mark, Anthony Walker, director at Circular, a board member at the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, and also a guest on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, has said, we hear of many waking watches established in buildings of a lesser height than 17.7 metres. To my mind, this reinforces the problem with funding only being applicable to high-rise buildings of circa 18 metres and above, when it's the case that many leaseholders in flats or buildings of less than 18 metres in height have exactly the same issues. It's disappointing that, four years after the Grenfell tragedy, so many buildings still require a waking watch. Any thoughts on this one, Mark? Well, who am I to argue with Anthony uh, on this topic? And I, I do agree with him. There are many buildings under 18 metres that suffer similar uh, situations as this and need to have ineffective or unsuitable cladding removed. The, the Waking Watch Relief Fund is a great concept. And listen, there's... 30 million be made available it's not an insignificant amount of money it is frustrating very frustrating to see little over um half of this effectively being spent now some will not be some not every application is going to get approved and may not be eligible but there's a wider argument here isn't there brian that actually where does it stop you know if, if a building is you know 15, 16 metres that faces the same issues, it, it, it needs access to a fund to make remedial work and make buildings safe. So yes, I would like to see the fund widen, but certainly what I'd like to see is, you know, I'm completely supportive of the Waking Watch Relief Fund as a concept, but yeah, it it is seemingly slow progress at the moment. Now, some people will say, oh, you know, look, London are, going to dominate the amount of funding already allocated. You, know, you could argue the north-south divide, etc. I think you also have to be realistic in this situation, Brian, that there are so many tall buildings in London that is going to be the most expensive area or the most applications and, and you know, where the most money is spent. I don't believe that's on a north-south divide at all. You know, it's close to a thousand buildings, isn't it, that... Um, that are London that would be eligible for this fund. So, you know, before we criticise where the money that already been allocated has been spent, I don't want to go down the route of a north-south divide. You can see 5.3 million has already gone outside of London of the 16.5 million that's already been um, allocated. So London is going to be a primary focus. And I do, you just have to hope, Brian, don't you, that this process will speed up because... For the longer we have buildings that are potentially at risk with cladding, it it's a danger to property protection and, and life safety, let alone the knock-on effects that people are having at the moment of being unable to sell properties for this reason. So it is a massive, massive issue, and it's one of the things that's come out on the back of Grenfell. If you think back of what we talked about today on the podcast, still, this far on, the effects of Grenfell are still being felt. It is... Almost everything we've talked about today, Brian, has had an influence from Grenfell, whether it's the digital conference we talked about, FSM Live, whether it's a fire safety event, whether it was our first news story or this, we're still feeling the effects. And it's not going away anytime soon. You know, we've got 
another piece of legislation that needs to go through the building safety bill we've got a regulator coming in now the building safety regulator so i think you know when i go back on that brian i do agree with Andy. i'd like to see it widened i'd also like to see them put their foot down a bit on trying to get more and more applications uh, be successful i'm sure there's an argument for more funding being needed as well i'm sure that argument will continue to to rear its head and again we talked about this before brian it is an absolutely vital area. The problem that this government or any government would have is there isn't an endless money tree for stuff. We are all going to have to pay back all of this one way or another through taxation, aren't we? Whether it's <laughs> whether it's court tax, personal tax, whatever, you know, from everything from furlough to this to everything else. Right now, um, you know, the, the economy is in as bad a state as it's ever been post-war, uh, so outside of wartime. And I think we're all bracing ourselves that when we get away from this dreadful pandemic and, and the economy continues to pick up, that we're in for some tough times ahead. And there'll be tough decisions to be made on things like funding like this. But when you cut it right back to the, the bare bones, property protection and life safety, that needs to be addressed as best as it can be and to be enough funding for it so hopefully that answers your question and um, i think it's probably about time that you uh, introduce the next guest on the podcast because he's very much linked to this story our second guest on this edition of the fire safety matters podcast is anthony walker a director of circular and a fellow of the royal institution of chartered surveyors anthony is a chartered surveyor and fire engineer who helps property owners and managers alike to maximize the management maintenance and investment of property and assets this entails providing advice and support to obtain a clear understanding of the existing position and also recommendations on action needed right through to the successful delivery of works on site. Anthony likes to explore new ways of working that create effective and efficient solutions and is a very firm believer that improvement and learning should be continuous. During the interview, Anthony covers several subjects including cladding, qualifications for fire risk assessors, EWS1 forms and the golden thread of information. First though, he focuses on circular and his own role with the business. First of all, Anthony, could you begin by detailing what Circular is all about as a business and also outline your own role within the organisation? Yeah, thanks, Brian. Thanks for uh, the introduction. Thanks for inviting me on here today. So uh, we were established as TopScan in 1992 and Circle deliver a range of services to help clients manage their property and land assets. We work across the UK in the public and private sector, carrying a range of detailed surveys of properties and estates, collecting a huge array of data, asset, compliance, condition, maximising the use of technology, which is part of what we do, really. I lead both the fire safety and compliance team and the building survey and project management team who work closely and complement each other well. In addition to this, I take an active role in driving forward our digital strategy and the great use of technology. And we're doing some great work on this at the moment. So that's who we are, Brian. One of your recent LinkedIn posts was entitled Fire Safety, Not Just Cladding. This is a subject I've discussed at great length with Mark and that we've highlighted in the pages of Fire Safety Matters. Could you revisit the key points of your post, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, that, that post that I shared recently is about uh, details of a House of Commons Housing Communities and Local Government Committee report titled Cladding Remediation Follow-up, uh, which was published 
uh, in late March, so relatively recently. And the report gave a, a clear update of the progress that has been made, many of which has been slow, unfortunately, uh, on the removal of unsafe cladding. But it also raised wider important issues on fire safety, not just cladding. And I know this is something you and I have spoken about, Brian, several times, that... <laughs> You know, over the last four years since Grenfell, much of the focus has quite rightly been about cladding. But fire safety is made up of a myriad of interconnected issues. And the tragic events at Grenfell were not purely down to cladding. Um, anyone that's followed the Grenfell Tower Inquiry will be aware of the scale and breadth of the issues from design, construction, ongoing maintenance. And if cladding had been the only issue at Grenfell, then who knows? But uh, we may not have ended up in the fire that we had, and we may not have ended up with 72 people losing their lives. And, and the report went on to make you know, a number of really good, strong recommendations on fire safety, which, which highlight, I highlighted. You know, firstly, the need to publish monthly data on buildings not just affected by ACM, but other serious fire defects awaiting remediation. And that this should not just be for buildings above 18 metres. I also want to highlight that the Building Safety Fund, which is a sizable amount of 5.1 billion, just doesn't go far enough. And the estimate of the total cost of remediation works on all affected buildings could be probably three times that amount, up to 15 billion pounds. And they recommend that a comprehensive Building Safety Fund should be established. That covers, in effect, three, three key areas. One, it applies to all, all high-risk buildings of any height, irrespective of tenure. Secondly, it covers fire safety defects, including combustible uh, insulation. And it covers all associated costs as well. And, and that's a key point because leaseholders who are contributing towards the costs in a loan scheme, the report is clear that the government should abolish the loan scheme and re-establish principles that leaseholders should not pay anything towards the cost of remediating historical building safety defects, which have nothing to do with the leaseholders. And for me, one of the strongest recommendations that is often overlooked is that this is not just about statistics, costs and materials. At the core of this are people people trapped in unsafe and sellable homes, which since the start of the pandemic, they've spent more time in than ever before. And it's vital that those affected residents get the mental health support that they need. This is a really serious issue that is often overlooked, Brian. Another issue that's been raised in the pages of Fire Safety Matters on numerous occasions, Anthony, is a debate around the formal requirements for qualifications for those individuals tasked with conducting fire surveys and indeed fire risk assessments. What kind of structure would you like to see put in place yeah, this is this is something which is surprising and concerning in equal measure. Uh, that's something as serious as fire safety. We don't have formal requirements for those that carry out this work to be qualified and competent. And there's no doubt in my mind that this situation has contributed to the problems that we're facing on fire safety across the UK. You know, if it's in place for gas, why is it not in place for fire safety would be the question I would ask. And now, how could you have picked up on this? And I know there's lots of work taking place on competency frameworks, which is really welcomed. But I get the sense that it could be some time before these are in place and the formal requirements flow from them. So you know, it may well be that we see something in the next 12 months, but it's difficult to say from the information that's been shared. My own view of this is that we could make more swift, immediate change. And that change could happen tomorrow or today, which would be that those seeking fire surveys and fire risk assessments should introduce a mandatory requirement themselves that they only look to uh, issue work um, and seek um, quotes from those that are qualified, competent and experienced, which they can back up with case studies and references that can be considered. This change, if it happened today, would be very much in line with Dame Judith Hackett's recommendation not to wait until he forced a change. Change is going to happen. So why don't we do it now? 
And at the moment, sadly, a number of opportunities that I see come to market don't ask for evidence of qualification and competence. And what you typically find is, in some of those, the lowest price wins. And we continue in this race to the bottom. That has to stop when we've got to move to a better place, Brian. And speaking from your perspective and with your own role at Circular very much in mind, what key challenges do you envisage impacting fire safety across the next 12 months? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a really good question and, and, and something uh, I, I guess jumps out immediately there is the pace of change. You know, four years have passed since the tragic events at Grenfell and we still have buildings that have combustible cladding on them. I think 217, which is 46% of the 469 in total, uh, where works haven't been completed. In Mulberry, in 36 buildings, 8% in total, they've not even started at all. And, you know, only recently did the building safety bill uh, um, get mentioned in the Queen's speech. It's been back and forth from the uh, Lords to the Commons many, many times. And that's taken, you know, quite an age. And whilst the report made clear that change must happen before legislation is introduced, I think we're not seeing that widespread. And, and there's some great examples where organisations are introducing change, but not widespread. And I think, you know, fire safety is a complex matter. And these things, you know, are never going to be turned around quickly, but we've got to accelerate the pace of change to avoid just dragging on too slowly. So that, that will be one of the key points. And I think to make that change, I think legislation will help drive that. And, you know, I think the only way that we're going to see that change happen is once that legislation is introduced, it can be reinforced with fines and in the more severe cases, custodial sentences, because until a tougher uh, place is arrived at for legislation, we're going to be limited to what we'll see in terms of actually the benefits across the, the UK. I mean, the Grenfell in inquiry has highlighted many, many mistakes happened in Grenfell. And for anybody that's not uh, listened to the BBC podcast or watch it, it's well worth just one or two because they're very, very eye-opening. And what is quite clear that of some of these mistakes, you know, um, that they would happen whether legislation was in place or not. We all make mistakes and we all learn from them. But I think what would happen with tougher legislation is I think there'd be more robust processes and checks in place to try and minimise those mistakes. And without legislation, it's questionable whether that would happen. But more concerning for me in the inquiry is the fact that it uncovered individuals and organisations that have made statements that they know were incorrect, CVs that have been inflated, qualifications stated that don't exist, the materials claimed to have performance that didn't have. You know, and what comes clear from that is that you know, in certain uh, instances, individuals and companies place profit before public safety, and this can never happen. Uh, and we have to move to a situation which is really avoided ever again by having legislation and fines that can avoid that. And I think the closer we can get to having that in place, I think the sharper people's minds will focus on in terms of what needs to happen going forward. And I think finally, um, one of the experiences that I often come across chatting to people employed in the, the fire safety and surveying space is that the difficulty is to obtain professional indemnity insurance. Since Grenfell, and even more so over the last few years, the market for PI insurance is hard and significant. There are less in the market who are willing to offer PI. And those that do, understandably, are more cautious. And this has created two key challenges, really, for those undertaking fire safety surveys. Firstly, premiums have significantly increased. And I've heard of cases where they've increased tenfold, which for some makes it no longer viable for the continue to offer those services. So they draw from the market. For those that remain, they're paying massively inflated premiums that they now have to absorb in some shape or form, which can be quite difficult. But in some cases, surveyors can't even get 
um, quotes, and they have no option but to stop offering the service. Now, for me, at a time when the government is increasing uh, the importance of fire safety with legislation around the corner and increasing responsibilities on building owners, we've now got a situation where we're likely to have less individuals out there to do this work. And if this isn't resolved, it's going to have a massive impact on the market, Brian. EWS One surveys are regularly mentioned in the news, Anthony. Clive Betts, the chair of the Housing Communities and Local Government Select Committee in Parliament, recently wrote to the government on continuing issues with the EWS One process as a whole. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, the EWS form is designed to be used for residential properties such as blocks of flats, student accommodation, dormitories that exist in living in care homes and houses in multiple occupation HMOs to capture details of what the external wall system is made up of on the outside of a residential building, including cladding, insulation, fire break systems, etc. The process and the form is a set way of a building owner to confirm that their external wall system on these buildings has been assessed uh, by a suitable expert individual that's qualified in line with government guidance. And it's intended to deliver assurance for lenders, valuers, residents, buyers and sellers about the building being safe. And the form was originally designed following government advice uh, over 18 metres and, you know, what needs to be done in relation to giving those lenders some comfort. And changes in that advice uh, occurred in January 20, uh, which brought all of the residential buildings in scope, not just those above 18 metres. Um, but not every building requires an EWS form. And the RSS has published some excellent guidance, which is freely available on their website for for valuers in particular, um, in March of this year, 2021, which sets out the criteria that's to be used to help decide whether a building should need an EWS one form or should it not. And Clive Betts has, in my opinion, done some excellent work here in relation to writing to the government to raise the fact that he's aware of many leaseholders up and down the country who are finding themselves in a situation where they can't sell or get a mortgage for their homes because their lender is insisting on EWS one form despite the fact that this building doesn't need one. And this is creating massive issues and delays in terms of uh, you know, the ability for people to move and a whole range of things. And he's asked the government for clarity on the ways that they will be supporting the guidance put together by the RSS and what action the government plans to take where mortgage lenders continue to insist on forms where they're not required. I mean, this isn't all lenders. You know, many of the lenders actually are following the guidance, but there are a number uh, that aren't. And hopefully what we will see over the next few months is that steps can be made and taken to ensure that we've got a consistent approach on EWS1 by all lenders. And finally, Anthony, Chapter 8 of the Hackett Review, and specifically pages 102 through until 106, covers in detail the need for a golden thread of information that will allow access to up-to-date building and fire safety related information. Do you have any strong views on this subject? Yeah, I mean, I was delighted to read this in the Hackett report about the golden thread, uh, and I think it's to be welcomed. Using technology to capture building data and enable more informed decisions on investment management buildings is something I've a passion for and worked with many, many clients over the years to, to, to get to that place. And they've all significantly benefited by having that greater clarity. And fire safety, without doubt, will gain from having better digital records of buildings. My, my own experience of fire safety and surveying those is generally that whilst there are some excellent examples where technology is used to create these records, on the whole, these tend to be in the minority and not the majority. And many still adopt very traditional ways of working, keeping records, gathering data. And I think just being open, I think for those, the journey to reach the golden thread is going to be quite challenging, albeit not impossible. 
And I think what um, we've seen quite recently is a formal definition of what the Golden Thread is, and that's been approved by the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, setting out five key, uh, key criteria, uh, which relates to information, documents, uh, the management processes, all to support building safety. And I look forward to seeing more details of how that will roll out, the timelines and the practicalities about how it will be implied and how they'll reinforce that for, for all uh, property owners that have high-rise residential buildings. But this equally highlights um, something that I think as we go forward, I'd be quite keen to see that this shouldn't be just restricted to high-rise residential buildings over 18 metres. In my opinion, at least it should go down to buildings uh, 11 metres and above and possibly less, but also all public buildings. And, you know, as we started this call, uh, Brian, fire safety is not just about high-rise residential and it's not just about cladding. And I think the more we can actually find ways to have fire safety front and centre in terms of how the estate is managed across the UK, I think the better will be in relation to reducing the risk of anything like Grenfell ever happening again. guest on episode 21 of the Fire City Matters podcast is Yusuf Mohammed, the co-founding director and chief design officer at Plumis. A master's graduate of both the University of Nottingham and Imperial College London, Yusuf established Plumis alongside colleagues Paul Thomas and Yung-Woo Choi. The trio worked in tandem on a series of solutions for fire suppression. In 2009, the company's popular auto-mist fire extinguishing solution won the James Dyson Award. It was also selected as one of the British Library's top 15 inventions of the last decade. During our discussion, Yusuf focuses his attentions on the subject of product testing and also outlines some typical applications for the Automist system. Yusuf, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Your suppression solution is quite different from traditional sprinklers and other misting systems. Why have you decided to do things differently at Plumis? Okay, so we've designed Automist from the ground up. Um, what we've done is we've done a lot of research looking into how to get the best use out of water mist um, and also to try and um, meet any unmet needs that we found there in the suppression market. Um, one of the uh, articles or the, the documents which we looked at um, early on in the development stage was a, a BERE research paper in the effectiveness of residential sprinklers and they identified two things. The first was that there are certain um, circumstances where traditional solutions are not cost effective. Um, so we wanted to come up with a solution that addresses that. And they also highlighted that there were certain types of fire, whether they were um, shielded fire, shielded fires or slow growing fires, uh, which were also challenging for existing technology. Um, so we developed our products to try and address some of these issues. And why have you opted for electronic activation rather than using a frangible bulb or a fusible link, for example? OK, so we've opted to go um, this route um, in a similar way to the car industry. Um, if you not, it wasn't too long ago where you had uh, mechanical cars and they, you will find electronic uh, electric systems in vehicles um, all over the world. And they've done so for a number of performance benefit uh, um, reasons. We want to do the same when it comes to active fire suppression systems. So um, 
rather than having just a, a ceiling temperature of 57 degrees that you have to get over before the system activates, can we address fires which don't um, heat the room up so that the ceiling temperature goes above that that threshold? Um, can we monitor the occupants within the space? Perhaps we'll change the uh, activation criteria at night versus the morning. Um, maybe we'll even look at the reliability of the sensors so we have self-diagnostics taking place. Um, there's a wealth of opportunity um, in going down the electronic route and we're really just keen to explore that. Now, you've recently conducted some fire tests, Yusuf. What have you been hoping to demonstrate with these testing procedures? Just completed a suite of testing at the Fire Protection Association. And what we were actually doing was um, some research to look, in, look at uh, tenability and survivability within the room of origin. Historically, uh, active fire suppression systems have been um, all about um, keeping the fire to the room of origin and we want to ensure that we can create survivable conditions for uh, an individual within that space. So one of the outputs um, is going to be uh, a fire engineering model so other specifiers, fire engineers can evaluate our systems because there isn't a huge amount of data and information out there about water mist systems um, and um, we're trying to uh, bridge that knowledge gap. And what other forms of product testing have you carried out in recent times Yusuf? We've invested about uh, two and a half million pounds since 2017 in the uh, research and development of our product. We're keen to keep pushing forward the technology. So we've tested it against the applicable standards um, and we've also supplemented that with um, uh, real life um, scenario testing. So whether it's a chip pan fire or a fridge fire, we wanted to make sure that the system will perform when it's called upon. At the moment, one of the things we're also doing is actively uh, pursuing certification. So we've been working with Underwriters Laboratories, uh, UL, in America, and um, are hopeful that that will conclude um, um, early next year. Can you tell us where the Automist solution is being stored at the moment? Sure. Um, we've had numerous uh, systems installed by local authorities, councils, housing associations looking uh, to use the system, perhaps after a uh, person centred um, risk assessment um, to protect uh, individuals in sheltered housing, maybe even to uh, future proof uh, social homes. We have a lot of installers um, that um, use the system for after a loft conversion. Um, a number of homeowners would select our system because it uses so little uh, water, so you don't have to put a tank or upgrade your, your water main. And I'd say another uh, group is uh, modular builders. And they like the system because it's dry pipe and they can do a lot of the installation work in the factory um, off-site um, and then not, not uh, have to connect all the, the, the pipe work up when um, they, they, uh, they reach the actual site itself. And lastly, Yusuf, if our readers want to find out more about Plumis and your systems, how can they contact the company direct? So the best place to go is on online. Um, 
we you can find us at plumis.com or plumis.co.uk um, or drop us a meet, an email at info at plumis.com as well. Bring us to the end of this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Anthony Walker from Circular, Yusuf Mohammed of Plumis, and also Warren Spencer from Blackhurst Buds Listers for their greatly valued contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMPodcast. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG and also access our LinkedIn page at Fire Safety Matters magazine and website. Please do like and share the content of our regular podcasts and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is enter the term Fire Safety Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.